Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Open Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm extremely pleased to host tonight's forum on Meeting the China Challenge and I would like to thank the co-presenters of tonight's event, the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Sydney and in the School of Social and Political Sciences in the Faculty of Arts. This event is part of our new Sydney Ideas Open series, which aims to not only provide access to the University of Sydney academic expertise, but to provide an informal setting that engages the wider Sydney community in discussion and debate on issues of importance. The full Sydney Ideas Open program for 2010 will be announced next week, and I recommend you visit the website, the Sydney Ideas website, to view that. The forum tonight will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. The usher will be handing around a handheld mic, so we ask you just to indicate if you want to ask a question and the microphone will be handed to you. Please use the microphone for your questions as we are recording the forum for podcasts from the university's website later this week. But for now, I'm very pleased to welcome to the lectern the organiser of tonight's forum, Dr James Riley, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney in the Department of Government and International Relations. Thank you, James. Thank you, Meredith. And I would like to add my welcome to everyone and to thank you all for coming here in what I hope will be a very special and invigorating discussion on Australia-China relations. I want to particularly welcome some of the individuals from China who've come to take part in events around this workshop, as well as people who've come here from the Chinese Embassy and the Chinese Consulate to be with us tonight. We're very glad to have that participation, and we'll hopefully find seats for some of those folks. Um, I also want to express my appreciation to the uh, supporters of this event. That includes particularly Sydney Ideas for agreeing to co-host the event, as well as the School of Social and Political Sciences, the Faculty of Arts and the Institute of Social Sciences, all at the University of Sydney. And finally, I just want to say a few words about the origins of this event, to find a little bit of background or context. And this event actually has its uh, origins in an event hosted by the Lowy Institute back in September, which focused heavily on Australia's defense white paper. And as you may recall, the defense white paper contains some relatively controversial language um, regarding the Chinese military, as well as calling for a pretty significant increase in Australia's military, including plans to add 12 new submarines to Australia's naval fleet. And around the same time, we had the onset of the Stern Hu affair, the arrest in China of an Australian citizen working for an Australian company, as well as incidents around and disputes over Chinese investments here in Australia's mining sectors. Lowy also released a poll around the same time, which showed that approximately 40% of Australians viewed China as a potential threat to Australia's national security, and about the same amount thought that the Australian government should actively work to limit the growth of Chinese power. So clearly, Australia's relations with China most the largest trading partner, are both complex and very important. To help us sort through some of these tricky issues, we have with us uh, four, of the most four, four of the most foremost experts on Australia's relations with China and Chinese politics. Now, there's a saying in the Analects attributed to Confucius. It goes, San ren xing, bi you wo shi. If there are three people walking, one of them must be my teacher. Well, I am particularly very honored here to have not three but four of people that I would regard as my teachers in helping us understand something about Australia's relation with China. So I'd like to turn it over to Professor David Goodman, who will moderate tonight's discussion. Thank you. Professor Goodman. Um, <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm, I'm joined on the panel uh, this evening by uh, three very distinguished commentators who I will introduce to you in a minute. But as you can see, 
we've managed to ensure that we have a good gender balance and a good nationality balance too. <laughs> uh, on my left here is uh, Dr. Richard Rigby, who is uh, famous in years gone by for being in DFAT, but is now uh, director of the China Institute at the Australian National uh, uh, University. Uh, and uh, it's purely coincidental, of course, that he's modelled his beard on George V. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, Michael Wesley, who is uh, a famous once academic, he tells me, and now uh, director of the Lowy Institute for Foreign Policy uh, Studies here in Sydney. And at the end, somebody who you probably won't recognise, because uh, he doesn't appear in person very much, not here, but who you will have read, because he's one of Australia's leading journalists, John Garner from uh, the Fairfax News, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, who has uh, come all the way from Sydney just to speak to you tonight. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, big pardon, yes, from Beijing, just to speak to you tonight. Okay. So the format we're going to have first is everybody's going, everybody here will talk to you uh, for ten minutes. Uh, I'll ask them a few questions, and then we'll open the thing out. So we'll start, if you don't mind, with um, George V. <laughs> Richard Rigby. Richard yes, Rigby. Yeah. If I didn't know what a rabid Republican you were, I'd take that as a compliment. <laughs> uh, this is a... Uh, to start with, I'm put very much in mind of the Chinese expression, Bunman Nongfo, uh, you know, the carpenter... Um, man exercising his carpentry skills in front of the most famous carpenter ever lived because clearly most of you here, all of you probably, know at least as much about this as I do and probably most of you more. So I'm not quite sure why you're here, actually. And, um, but anyway, here we go. Uh, I, the other thing I should say is this is largely a view of somebody who for most of his life has been a practitioner rather than, um, rather than somebody taking an academic approach to these issues. And on that basis, well, last year showed us that the relationship was not trouble-free. Uh, but actually, it never really was. There have always been, been ups and downs. This is exactly what you'd expect for a relationship between any two countries, particularly countries which are really quite, quite different. And if we go back to the beginnings of the, of the modern relationship, the diplomatic relationship, the end of 1972, and I like to remind people who bang on about uh, you know, the importance of values, diplomacy, and all this sort of thing, that it would be hard to think of two countries which were more different than Australia and China back at the end of 1972 and in many ways far more different than we are now. But nevertheless, there's a recognition of the, of, of the realities, the strategic realities, like, and just the fact that China was there and we were here, uh, a decision was made, and a very sensible decision, and a very overdue decision it was, and so we commenced this, this relationship. And it was, it was very different. There was minimal trade, and there was no particular expectation that trade was going to ever be particularly important. In fact, a lot of people who knew about the relationship were pretty sure it wasn't going to be particularly important other than selling some wheat and wool. Um, and not a great deal was expected in, in that regard. And then it was China, which was still being run by the Gang of Four. You know, Mao was, was still alive. It was, uh, it, had, it, was, it was staggering out of the most violent phase of the great proletarian cultural revolution, but the effects of the, the cultural revolution were everywhere to be, to be seen. Uh, in people's heads as well as what you, what you saw about you. Uh, and Australia, of course, has been going through its own cultural revolution, a far more benign sort of cultural revolution in our case, which actually was part of what led up to the election of the Labour government in 72 and the decision to recognise China, the time when our 
geography finally started to become at least as important as our, as our history and when it came to making up our minds about important uh, national, national issues. Um, I think, you know, we recognised the realities for, for what they were. Uh, but, um, and I think for most of the time since then, this has been a relationship which has been informed by a blend of pragmati- uh, pragmatism but with a, with a dash of optimism. And I think, by and large, what's happened is, is prove that to be, to be correct. But that's not to say there weren't problems. There were problems right from the very beginning and all the usual sorts of problems. You have consular problems and problems around visas and differences on uh, human rights and, uh, you know, people would say the wrong thing and, you know, Minister X would put his foot in it and, and so on and so forth. There are problems with Chinese boat people, quite serious problems at, at one stage, which we've largely forgotten about. This is a problem which was solved at the source through, through very good and very pragmatic negotiations between the Australian and Chinese governments at the time. We had differences, quite serious differences, for instance, over Cambodia and the role that uh, China was, was playing there and its relationship with the Khmer Rouge regime and so on and so forth. Um, but that didn't stop the, the, the development of uh, uh, quite a serious and, and useful relationship. Of course, 1989, uh, June the 4th, was the really big hiccup, and that certainly set things, things back for some time. But by that stage, of course, China had, was, was, uh, had completed the first decade uh, of the reform and opening process. And so despite you know, uh, the unhappiness about uh, June the 4th, by the end of 1989, again, economic strategic realities were kicked in and, and we were back in pursuing a, a meaningful bilateral relationship uh, in, the, in the interests of both countries. Um, and, of course, by that time, we had the beginnings of a development of a very serious economic uh, relationship, and that has uh, continued to grow, to grow very substantially ever since then. But probably because of uh, June the 4th, it was a relationship which came perhaps informed in with a greater sense of, of, of realism and some of, the, some of the gloss certainly fell off and I think not since then have we seen the same quality of personal relationships between Australian, top Australian leaders and their Chinese equivalents. Uh, there was a period, uh, particularly under Hawke and under Keating, their relations with Hu Yabang, with, 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 with Zhao Ziyang were, were, were particular uh, nature and led to a good deal of personal closeness as well as uh, the more general sort of uh, diplomatic relationship that you you would expect. Um, Because what's happened since then is uh, at a certain point, well for quite a long time we used to talk regularly all our speeches would say at some point you know, uh, a more powerful uh, more prosperous China is something that Australia welcomes. We see this as a uh, a force for stability in the region. It's a jolly good thing. And it was actually very easy to say it because we all thought it was going to take a hell of a long time before it actually happened. And then somewhere along the way, we turned around and said, by golly, it actually has happened, and it's happening more and, and more, and it is getting more powerful, and it is getting economically stronger, and so on and so forth. And so suddenly this is a reality that we're dealing with, and it is actually changing our world. And it has happened faster than anybody expected. I think it happened faster than people in China expected as well as uh, people here. And then, of course, James has already run through the things that have happened over the last couple of years, the Olympics, uh, Olympic torch, you know, Tibet, uh, Stern Hu, uh, more recently uh, Xinjiang, our defence white paper coming up in the, in, in the middle of all of that. And for a while it looked as if things were really going a little bit out of control. Uh, 
the fact is that none of these issues are issues that haven't happened before, and they're not issues that aren't going to happen again. They're certainly going to happen again. But they were very much concentrated, and they came about at a time when more and more people in Australia were thinking about China than perhaps has ever been the case, uh, because more and more China, because of its rise, because of its growing economic power, its, uh, its growing role in a whole range of, of fora, in the world is now just in people's faces in a way it wasn't before. And for most of the last 20 or 30 years, the uh, discussion, thinking about China in the Australian context took place by and large in, in relatively restricted and reasonably well-informed circles. But the days when that can happen almost in a vacuum are over. It's never going to happen again because China is there. Everybody's thinking about it. Well, sorry... Um, everybody's not thinking about it or not thinking about it to a uh, particular effect. There are a lot of people talking about it, and we saw much of that last year, and it was very clear that not all who were talking about it were actually also thinking about it or certainly thinking about it in any way which reflected a knowledge of China or, for that matter, uh, any real understanding of where Australia's own national interests lay in this relationship. And that's, you know, for people who've been involved, invested bits of their life in, or quite a bit of their life in, in this relationship, it could be a bit, bit, a bit annoying and a bit distressing. But on the other hand, I think it's also inevitable because we are on a pretty sharp learning curve where China is concerned. Uh, I think it was also uh, unfortunate, perhaps, that these events took place uh, in a context where there was... We lacked a clear articulation from the, from the highest levels of our own government about precisely what the relationship should mean for Australia, where was it going, how did we place it in terms of our other important relationships with, uh, with, with the United States, obviously, with Japan and so on. Um, and perhaps there's a little bit of disappointment because a prime minister who was uh, more than any other prime minister... Uh, academically informed and had worked in China as a diplomat. Um, uh, there might have been a little bit of uh, sense of disappointed expectations on the Chinese side and uh, in Australia because there were all sorts of other things going on and perhaps for uh, domestic political reasons it was considered not, uh, not the best timing uh, to talk because the the whole question of the China relationship had become politicised in a way in which it had not been really since 1972, and I think that is one of the most unfortunate things that has happened, that it did become politicised in a bipartisan fashion, that there were, were people probably around the Prime Minister who thought for him to step in at that stage would only stir things up further. Um, since then, Steve Smith has given a good, a, a good speech. We've had a visit by Li Keqiang, uh, and obviously events have shown that people on both sides... Uh, policymakers on both sides don't want to get things out of control, and, th and, that's, and that's jolly good. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean that things aren't going to continue to be, to be difficult. And the fact is the relativities of power in our region are now changing. You know, Australia is a country which exists solely because of the maritime supremacy of the British Empire. We, you know, Australia, we're on uh, this big island here because of uh, British naval hegemony. And that's a naval hegemony which was then taken up by the Americans after Pearl Harbor and the fall of Singapore and so on. And it's been a pretty comfortable world for us, and that's the one in which we've lived. But that's not the world in which most of the people in, this, in, this, in, in, in the region have lived. 
You know, we have never actually had encountered a powerful China before. All the other countries in the region have. So we're the new kids on the block when it, when it comes to this, uh, this, this form of the relationship with China. So perhaps the challenges are greater for us than they have been for others. And it also does pose questions about alliance management, where do we stand vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the United States. Um, I'm not at all pessimistic. I mean, I think we can deal with these challenges, but you know, for the first time, for instance, our major trading partner is not also our major security partner. And I include Japan in that because in security, in the security sense to all intents and purposes, it's, 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 it's a, an adjunct uh, of the United States. Suddenly that's not the case anymore. It means we, we're being put in positions where we have to make choices which we didn't have to make before, which means we're going to have to think a lot harder. And we not only think about the rise of China, uh, because we presume, and I think correctly, that China is going to continue to grow. Of course, it's going to have all sorts of problems. There's nobody as aware of the problems that China faces as are the leaders of China itself. And when they think of problems, they think preeminently about domestic problems. That's what keeps them awake at night, what they probably think about when they first wake up in the morning, not how to take over the world. Uh, but there are you know, implications, international implications for that. We think about the rise of China, we also think what sort of a China is it going to be? What is China going to be like in 20 years? We know now that China today is very different than China of 20 or 30 years ago. So we can certainly hazard a reasonably well-informed guess that in 20 or 30 years from now, China is going to be very different from how we see it. But exactly what sort of a China it's going to be, we don't know. They don't know. Hui Bang doesn't know. I mean, Hui Bang doesn't know. Well, he may. He may. He may. <laughs> but the other Hu, Hu, Hu Jintao doesn't know. He, he, he probably knows very much what he would like it to be, but he doesn't know where it's going to go. I mean, since the opening and reform began, enormous forces have been unleashed, which have led everybody in, in, in directions which were uh, un, unforeseeable at the time. Um, People talk about China as a totalitarian country, and if there was any one word I would like to ban, it would be that one. It's just rubbish. It, yes, it's a one-party state. It's, a very, it's an authoritarian one-party state. Um, we might wish it were totalitarian in as much as uh, when Beijing comes up with good policies, policies which they do uh, quite often, and they're very, very well advised. It would be nice if they could then be re uh, implemented throughout the country, but that's not the way it works. If it's authoritarian, it's a very fragmented sort of authoritarianism. But it's also not totalitarian in the sense that China is an absolute uh, you know, turmoil. Well, turmoil is not the word, but it, it's, it's a boiling cauldron, if you like, of ideas. Everything is being discussed and thrashed out, and not only by people who might be described as, as, as dissidents or, or non-official China. Within official China, there is an enormous amount of churning of ideas and discussions about just about anything at all that matters. And... In Australia, I think we are more than ever beholden to try to understand these debates, to try to see where China might be going, where the Chinese, different sorts of Chinese believe it might, be, it might be going, because this is going to matter to us. Now, it's a big challenge, it's a big ask, but I think you know, we, are, we are up to it. But we need to be aware of what the challenge is. Step one is just raising the level of the, of the debate, and Sydney University deserve a great deal of credit for, for doing this, for the, the day of discussions we've been, we've been having. And I think all of us, I mean, every single person is in, in this room has an important part to play in ensuring that the debate is better informed and takes into account as much as possible 
both developments within China and an understanding of where Australia's own interests lie and what the challenges are going to be and what the difficulties are going to be so that in foreseeing these difficulties we can try to deal with them in ways which take fully into account both our national interest and China's national interest but don't allow particular problems to hijack the whole relationship in, in the way in which, for instance, history issues can only too often hijack the China-Japan relationship. We need to avoid that sort of thing happening. And to avoid that happening, we need to make sure that whatever discussions we have are as well-informed as they can possibly be. And you know, this is not just a task for the universities. It's a task for the, for the media. It's a task for business. It's a task for anybody involved in, in, in government. Uh, it's basically a task for all Australians who care about the future of our country. That's where I'll leave it. Thank you. There'll be a competition. Uh, whoever gets the most applause <laughs> will get a prize at the end. Michael. Oh, well, thanks, David. Um, and uh, thanks all for coming. Talk about Pack to the Rafters. Um, it's a bit like being on a Beijing bus in here. You know, people are sitting in the, in the aisleways. Um, I'm quite interested in, in the title you chose for this, uh, this session, Meeting the China Challenge. And the, the word that kind of interests me about that title is the word challenge. Because one sense of the word challenge is when one is challenged, one is forced to re-examine oneself, uh, to re-examine what one believes, what one stands for, what one regards as good and what re one regards as bad. And I think in that way, uh, that is the sense in which China and its rise challenges Australia and, more importantly, will challenge Australia into the future. And I'm talking 20 years into the future. The latest prediction is that uh, China will be uh, the largest economy in the world in absolute terms by 2032. So that's not a long time away. That's, a, you know, that's, that's coming at us pretty quickly. The way I like to think about China and its influence is to use the term gravitational power. And what I mean by that is gravitational power is the ability to affect someone else's circumstances and decisions irrespective of what you do or what you intend. And I think China is already ex exerting that sort of gravitational power on us, on the countries of this region, on the world in general, irrespective of what people and leaders in Beijing decide to do. It's doing that economically, it's doing that increasingly in security terms and it's doing that increasingly in terms of values. And that's the way in which I think China, irrespective of what uh, Beijing evolves into in the years ahead, uh, will, will challenge us through. Uh, I'll give you an example of China's gravitational power. Since 2002, the China factor alone, China's economy, has brought about... a a more than 70% change in Australia's terms of trade. It has brought, brought about uh, an over 13% lift in Australia's real GDP. In a very real sense, the prosperity that we're all facing, or that we're all enjoying, should I say, uh, comes from the sheer dynamism and the sheer size of this society. Because there's something millennial going on here. The, the great divergence that happened 500 years ago 
when the societies of the West, of Europe in particular, but Europe's offshoots, suddenly became massively uh, more wealthy uh, than uh, the non-European societies, that age has come to an end. And now we're seeing the great convergence with billion-plus populations in this part of the world suddenly through changes of culture, changes in knowledge, are suddenly starting to attain the sorts of productivity rises, the sorts of, of wealth rises uh, that are bringing them much, more, much closer uh, to our wealth situation. So how is China going to, uh, in this gravitational way, affect uh, Australia in a way that challenges us, that causes us to rethink who we are and what we are? And I think uh, those sorts of challenges uh, are going to be many and, and, and manifold, and they are going to be profoundly challenging in that sense of the word. <coughs> in a prosperity sense, or in an economic sense, Let's think about the way that China will change Australia. At the moment, we're currently focused on how wealthy we're all getting because of all of this, all of these, you know, all of this Chinese investment, all of this money that is flowing back to us because of the minerals we're supplying to China. But think about what's happening. Look at our exchange rate. What is happening to our exchange rate as a result of this? Uh, for the past 30 years, we've become accustomed and we've settled into a situation in which the Australian dollar has oscillated in a band around about 70 cents to the US dollar. We are now looking at a situation in which the Australian dollar will go close to parity, if not past parity, with the US dollar. Now that is going to be uh, profoundly challenging to everything we've been trying to do with our economy, to our economy, for the past 40 years. That is, diversify it past agricultural and resource exports. That sort of economy in which the Australian dollar is at parity or past parity is going to be an economy in which it is very hard to manufacture things and sell them. It's going to be an economy in which it's going to be very hard for services, including great universities like this one, to sell their wares overseas. It's just going to be too expensive. So the question in the economic space about the challenge of China is where are we going to be in 30 years if the Australian dollar maintains that level uh, of parity or past parity with the US dollar? What's going to be le left when suddenly China and India don't need our resources as much anymore or when they, when they run out? What are we going to stand for and how is this society going to maintain its prosperity? And what should we be doing now to, to put in place structures uh, that enable the Australia of the future to be one in which we want our kids and our grandkids to live in. China challenges us also in our sense of security. I won't go into this uh, in too much detail because Richard uh, has talked about this uh, in, in quite extensive ways. But China is a profound uh, challenge to our sense of security because... We have always, as Richard said, lived in this part of the world where one particular country, first Britain, then the United States, was the absolutely supreme country in this part of the world. No other country came close to challenging it. The problem of China's rise is that it profoundly challenges America's absolute primacy in this particular
particular part of the world. And the thing that worries me about the deep strategic rivalry between China and the United States is that each of them believes that this region's peace and stability and security depends on their own primacy. So the Americans think that they must be the prime strategic actor in this part of the world if it's going to be peaceful and secure, and the Chinese think that they must be the, the, uh, the primary security provider in this part of the world. And guess what? Those two visions are utterly incompatible. So we've got, I think, uh, at least a couple of generations of serious strategic rivalry that's going to happen between China and the United States. And, of course, the United States is our main security provider. We shouldn't kid ourselves, despite what our white papers say, that we can defend ourselves against a serious challenge from any, any of these big countries around us. In the security space, China, I think, eventually will become a behemoth sitting in this part of the world. Its influence, its gravitational influence, will inevitably wash over the rest of this part of the world. The pattern I see em emerging is a pattern where uh, other countries that are, that are around China can see this and are nervous about it and are trying to do things to offset that Chinese influence and power. And the key countries I see are Japan, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia and India. These are countries that accept that they are going to become more and more economically dependent on China, but they don't want that economic dependence to turn into strategic dependence and political dependence. So they are all strengthening their relationships with the United States and with each other. So the challenge of our relationship, uh, sec the security challenge of our relationship with China is arguably uh, getting ourselves to tear our, our attention away from China. The Australia-China relationship will grow uh, irrespective of what we do. Our challenge is to look at our relationships with these other key actors and think about them. Our challenge is to tear our focus away and think about our relationship with Japan, think about our relationship with India, with Vietnam and, uh, and uh, with uh, Indonesia. And remember, these are relationships that are in a bad state of repair currently and they need to be fixed up pretty quickly. Finally, values. China is a profound uh, challenge to the values on which we're founded because they will sudden, China's rise and China's influence will suddenly start to make us think about what values we, we hold dearly. What sort of things are we most passionate about in terms of the values that animate Australian society? If I was cynical, I would say our key and, and, and topmost value is prosperity. Australia, uniquely uh, among countries of this world, has never been poor. Australia uh, was founded as a European... Uh, 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 Europeans arrived in Australia just as the Industrial Revolution happened. Fifty years after uh, Europeans arrived here in Sydney... Australia was per capita the richest society on earth and we have been obsessed by our prosperity ever since. Arguably, we have never taken our liberal democratic values, our freedoms, as seriously as our prosperity values because they have never been seriously challenged. The challenge of China will be whether 
we continue to prioritize our prosperity values over our liberal democratic freedoms. And that is a, a society-wide conversation that is coming at us very quickly and it's a society-wide uh, challenge that will happen sooner than we think. I'll leave it there. Thank you. And now I'll ask everybody's uh, favourite journalist to uh, say a few words. John. Thank you, David. Have I got two minutes left? You have got, you've got ten still. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Um, well, I'm glad somebody's thinking about the China 30 years from now because I'm still trying to work out what happened to China yesterday. And it's really, really hard. And when I first accidentally became a journalist about eight years ago now, and I accidentally became an economics journalist at that stage, um, to talk in my kind of currency, the price of iron ore was 20 bucks a tonne, and now it's 100 bucks um, a tonne. And that's kind of almost a proxy for everything else that's happening with China and Australia. You know, it's five times more important, and I suspect that our kind of knowledge base about what's going on is not five times better than it was um, eight years ago. And that's what I suspect what we're all kind of here to kind of redress a little bit. And I'm sure it's going to, I can kind of feel even kind of with my job, the kind of curiosity that people have for China. You know, I'm sure this is kind of a naturally redressing, um, self-redressing situation. But at the moment, you know, we don't really know what's going on in China. I suspect that a lot of people in China don't know what's going on in China. And I suspect actually no one in China really knows what's going on in China. And there's sort of 180 degrees of possibilities of, you know, what um, might be happening in the future based on the kind of possibility that we still don't know what's going on now. So in terms of our policy challenges, you know, it has to begin, I think, with kind of uh, filling that kind of closing that supply-demand gap for information and analysis that, um, that we have at the moment. You know, it's very difficult to begin formulating any sorts of sensible pol policies until we have a kind of an informed um, debate. And there are kind of parts of that, um, but, you know, as you know, I've experienced in the last little while or so, there's, you know, there's lots more debate than there is kind of informed debate um, at the moment. And if you, don't, if you could excuse me, I, I thought I might just kind of be a little bit self-indulgent and talk about some of my own kind of, you know, discoveries. You know, every kind of month or so I make a little trip somewhere and I realise, geez, you know, that's how China works. And, um, and that's how I didn't understand how China worked a month before and the next month the same thing happens. And it goes kind of, you know, a continual cycle of realising you didn't have a clue what was going on. Um, and, you know, it's... Not for, you know, it's, some of it's for, for, you know, it's terrific discoveries about amazing people. Some of it's kind of really frightening and scary discoveries about, you know, how the system works. And they've all been, for me, happening in, in parallel. And um, if I could perhaps just mention a couple of kind of stories that I did, which were kind of, for me, like, whoa. Um, uh, it's, you know, I was amazed that, that, um, that the place worked as it did. Um, one was um, my first real story that I did in China was, you know, I thought it was going to be a really fun story about these two coal miners who dug themselves out of um, a, a mine um, just in the hills next to Beijing, you know, couldn't be kind of, I thought, you know, a more familiar, easy kind of narrative and I'd going to kind of go and interview the heroes and kind of it'd be all great. But when we got there, the story was completely inverted. It was all about how the corruption and official... Um, um, you know, genuine lack of, such lack of accountability to people below officialdom out there that, 
Now, these guys were left to die, and um, not only that, their colleagues were trying to dig them out of this mine up in, in Feng Shan, and they were ordered off the site, and it was, it was, um, it was all roped off so that, the, so that the officials could sit there, and, and they brought in a pack of 24-pack of water for him to sit on, and somebody bought new shoes for him to kind of wear. And they sat there and camped there for a week, uh, until they decided whether or not they were going to perform the rescue and after a week they decided it was too late and they all should go home. Now, I still don't know what that was about. You know, um, you know I, I guess that, that was about uh, that, you know, the risk of information getting out and even if that means people getting out is a bigger risk to this guy's career than, um, you know, than the downside of these two guys dying in the mine below. And I still don't work out, understand what happened there, but... It was, um, you know, obviously the government system was not working in this particular part of China, in this local government um, region, and for me it was a very scary thing. Um, on the flip side, we went and found these guys up in Inner in Mongolia, in a, up, right up north in Inner Mongolia, kind of living in a very, very humble village, and they were just amazing. You know, they, were, they expected nothing from life, and they felt like they had received something for life, you know. So for, for them, you know, everything that was going on was a kind of dividend. There was no resentment. It was, um, you know, because, you know, life was actually so much more difficult 20, 30 years before than it was now. And so, you know, despite kind of my shock at the system, there was another shock that kind of there's an incredible vibrancy in kind of Chinese society. And one after another, these sort of twin discoveries have, uh, have been happening to me where, you know, I've been talking today about the media where... Um, you know, I've found some just amazingly terrific people in the media industry, which is kind of, um, you know, you, perhaps I wouldn't, you know, I didn't really expect to find that in a very state-controlled propaganda kind of system, and that's what it is, and it is very tightly controlled. There's an increasingly um, uh, fabulously professional and aspirational and curious uh, media profession being kind of built up, and, um, and you know, it's, Often, lots of these people, these people are often frustrated because the system doesn't allow them to report what they uh, what they come across. I mean, and, and so they often gravitate to business journalism, which is a bit easier than some other aspects of you know, um, uh, political or social um, journalism. Uh, they're often frustrated at the controls that they face. But I also think, man, these guys didn't exist ten years ago, and. Um, um, and I see that I'm about to be corrected here. There was a naval system, an internal system that's been going on forever in China. Um, but in terms of journalism as we know it, where the, where the idea is to, uh, to impose a degree of public accountability, I mean, there was no such thing until sometime in the mid-'80s, and it's been kind of you know, very slowly evolving. But in the last, uh, certainly since I've been there, um, you know, the official kind of controls have got tighter and tighter and tighter, but I think that's almost directly proportionate to how more how um, more effective and you know almost more dangerous this mass of uh, of um, professional media uh, professional journalists is becoming. And I kind of see this in other aspects of Chinese life, you know, the civil society aspects of life all the time. You know, the, the legal system, all these extraordinary lawyers, the Wei Chen lawyers who have just um, Emerge, you know, really in the last five or six years, as far as I can tell, and they're always getting arrested and beaten up, and um, and the courts are being more and more tightly controlled. But these, but there's a genuine sense of a legal profession, which you know I doubt that there really was ten years ago, and so all these contradictory, um, uh, these.
sweeps, you know, contradictory forces are kind of continually kind of at play and messing with my mind, and I suspect with you know, yours as well if you're meeting, reading my stories. Um, <laughs> I apologise for that. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, to me it doesn't surprise me that um, our policy process has not kept up with the importance of China, and there are some really big holes, I think, and I've been personally very critical of it couple of things in particular, you know, I've, I've, um, you know, I think it was, you know, our foreign investment regime was a, was a mess. Um, you know, lots of people have tried to convince me otherwise, but they haven't, that, you know, I suspect we actually didn't realise, we didn't actually sit down and work out what do we think is important about Chinese investment, what is good about it, um, if it is scary, what exactly is scary about it, can we control it or can we not? And so there's sort of uh, everything gets lumped together. Um, uh, you know, kind of politics are allowed to kind of sway the debate more than they should. Um, but personally, the more I learn about Chinese companies, um, the more I think, you know, there are some, you know, personally, kind of, I don't see the big deal about Chinalco kind of getting a very minority role out in the middle of the Pilbara somewhere um, with Rio Tinto. Um, and there are some other companies which are, you know, which are very different. You know, if Chinalco was an agent of the Chinese government, then PetroChina, which we've seen this week launch... Um, a joint $3 billion bid for a um, Queensland natural gas company. I mean, PetroChina practically owns the government in, so, in some um, sectors. You know, talk to anybody in the energy department of the NDRC, talk to our friends at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who have, have had anything to do with um, trying to put out the bushfires in Sudan in the last 15 years. And you know, that was a case of um, people using their kind of trees of ties of patronage, but, but you know, PetroChina was a ministry and they've evolved into this, not just a ministry, but a ministry with an infinite budget from their oil revenue. Um, and they can use that and they outrank the guys that are supposed to be setting policy to control them um, in the NDRC, in the Ministry of Commerce, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And, um, and so you know, that's an example of kind of the complexity we see. It is very difficult to set... Um, I don't think you can have hard and fast rules about foreign investment, Chinese foreign investment in China, because if PetroChina is coming, you know, I think that's a different story to Chinalco. Um, you know, um, and then again, you know, maybe I'd be more concerned about some of the private Chinese companies, which are kind of, but you know, private is often never quite private in China. Personally, I'd be a little bit more concerned about a telecommunications company like Huawei. Um, installing telecommunications infrastructure in Perth and Darwin, as they have, with no trouble from FERB, than I would be with um, you know, some other companies, kind of, like I said, acquiring a big lump of dirt out in the, you know, the middle of Western Australia. But you know, the point is not that I know what's kind of desirable or not, but it's just really, really, really complicated, and I'm glad everybody's come along, and I look forward to your questions. And, um, and I apologise for not being able to satisfy anywhere near the kind of demand that there obviously is for... Um, Information and analysis and sensible kind of stuff on China, but it's bloody exhausting up there, and I just can't keep up. <laughs> okay, um, we're going to have questions in, but I'd, I'd like to ask all of you uh, a kind of question before we start, and I should tell the audience that uh, I haven't prepared my colleagues for this, but uh, if you had to alter, improve, change the Australia-China relationship in one way, one thing, what would that request be? Would you like to start, Rich? Um, no, I wouldn't. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have any alternative, do I? No, uh, yeah, look, not look, if you this, want to this, get this, dinner. This is, this is just a small thing, and, and it's, uh, 
and I've touched on it already, uh, you know, just one, one small step which would be useful, which would be to have a clear and authoritative uh, expression from our government about the thing in toto, how, 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 it's go- how it's going to look. Now, Rudd, before he became Prime Minister, gave a very good talk at Brookings Institute in Washington about Australia, China, United States. It was very good. And he gave another one a few months after he became Prime Minister, also at Brookings Institute uh, in Washington. I think we need something like that in Australia uh, now, at least in the, in, in the next few, few months. And we're, we're, out, we're, we're I think, we, you know, we're out for the time being, we're out of the silly season in the last, last couple of years. So uh, if there had been any concerns about, you know, throwing fuel on the fires, I think that we, don't, we don't have to worry about that. I mean, I know there's an election coming on sooner, probably sooner rather than later. But, but I, I think we need something to help set the scene again for how how our government sees... What, why, is, why is the relationship important? What, what's in it for Australia? Where might the problems be? You know, why, uh, how, how this impacts on our crucial relationships with other countries? Um, uh, why, uh, if we do uh, talk very seriously about these sort of issues with the Americans, with the Japanese, with the Indonesians, with the Indians, why this is not ganging up on China, because while we do have to have that discussion, I think the last thing we need to do is to be seen to be becoming some part of a, of a, of a coalition designed to somehow, you know, hold China down. Coalition of the willing. Coalition of the willing. Sorry, a bit naughty. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. but I won't make it even worse. Um, <laughs> and maybe I'll leave it there. <laughs> Michael. Um, I would... If I had a magic wand, I would make uh, Australian society as hungry for knowledge about China and the other countries of this region as China is about uh, the West and other countries of its region. And um, we could look forward to uh, more money going into universities and schools to do that. (laughs) Well, while we're in the land of fantasy I, um, <laughs> um, you know, I would abolish the patriotic education campaign in the Chinese um, schools and propaganda system because I think it just poisons the atmosphere of foreign relations to the point where um, last year I really thought there was a historic opportunity where I don't know if it will ever come around for a very long time where an American administration took the risk of being humble enough to approach China, to try and engage China, to try and kind of be a little bit more egalitarian in the way it runs the world. And you know, China told it to, I think, and I'm sure lots of people disagree, China told it to bugger off in all sorts of ways. And it was, and I didn't really understand this, and I probably still don't, but, it, but watching the kind of daily drumbeat of, I mean, worst in the global times, but also in... You know, a lot of state-run, uh, state-owned, most of state-owned media that I can think of. You know, Obama. You know, he all. You know, he smiles nicely because he's got ulterior motives. He's subversive. You know, he's really trying to contain China. It's a trap. It's a trick. Every day, and it just permeates. You know, not entirely at all. And a lot of people think this is ridiculous, but it's enough through the system to make it. Uh, actually, you know, it made me think. 
actually the system in China is not actually designed to be friends. You know, at the moment, it's predicated on... It's almost the reason for being for a modern post-communist Communist Party is defend China from uh, the United States, or if not the United States, somebody. Um, and until that kind of internal um, corrosive propaganda system is to some extent diluted or dismantled, you know, I think it's actually... I actually think it's impossible for, um, for the United States and, and, and China to kind of have a cooperative, um, um, enga- a genuinely cooperative um, relationship on a whole series of fronts because at the moment, as currently defined, it's not in the Communist Party's self-interest. Okay. Uh, all right. So the, the floor is now yours. I recognise um, a young man over there who would, if you can get the mic to him, Tony Welch. Uh, please just say who you are, if you like. If you don't like, don't say it. Tony Welch from the Faculty of Education. I'd just like to ask the panel about what I think hasn't been discussed uh, so far, and that is a, a major topic of uh, debate and interest in China, and that is um, the notion of soft power. Um, we see it in, for example, um, the way in which Chinese aid is being distributed worldwide. We see it in the rise of the spectacular rise of Confucius Institutes and a number of other ways. Um, I'd just like the panel, panel to uh, perhaps give us their thoughts on the, the future. Well, soft power is, is a, it's a big deal in China. You know, the, 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 uh, the Chinese foreign policy world have discovered soft power big time. And they're all talking about it and they're all discussing it and the discussions about, you know, what soft power with Chinese characteristics might mean and so on and so forth. And clearly the Confucius Institute's a part of this. The moves towards to create a sort of a, a, a Chinese equivalent of the BBC World Service, you know, getting part of this whole sort of you know, de- hegemonic discourse about, you know, let us get some of the commanding heights here and here and there and elsewhere uh, to control the debate better and so on and so forth. That's all, that's all there. Um, how much impact does it, does it have, though? I, I, I think not actually all that much. Um, I mean, I think the best soft power China has is simply being China, and by China I don't mean necessarily the People's Republic of China or the Communist Party or anything like that. It's simply, you know, China as a civilizational force and the more, uh, the more China is able to uh, recover you know, the, the things that were core for several thousand years in making Chinese civilization one of the most you know, outstanding ways of being human uh, that we've seen on the face of the earth, uh, then I think the more successful China will be. But deliberate government campaigns to try to push this uh, don't work if they don't reflect something which is really good. And there you talk, and you're talking about, I mean, Michael talked about gravitation. I'm thinking more about, you know, pull factors. When China becomes a country to which lots of people want to go and live permanently, to migrate to, uh, that's when I think Chinese soft power is really showing that it's winning out. When as many people want to up sticks from wherever it is they live and go to live in China as want to go to live in the United States or in Australia, then I think, again, you can say that the soft power 
is really uh, taking effect. I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. Uh, and the whole question of how much soft power can actually be deliberately used by governments is distinct from the attraction of particular uh, ways of being human, ways of organising your society, ways of being yourself. They're two rather different things. I don't, I don't, and, I, and, I, and I'm far from convinced that uh, governments are certainly very, in, very interested in trying to do this now. Chinese governments discover it, they want to do it. I'm, I'm not sure if it works like that, actually. You know, the, the, way, the way to really win the soft power debate is to, make, is to ensure that your society uh, is, is very attractive to other people. Uh, and so you exercise soft power by treating your own people as well as you possibly can. Uh, you know, setting good uh, examples of uh, uh, humaneness and uh, not letting people not be rescued in coal mines and so on and mm. so forth. I think uh, China is uh, discovering that soft power has its downsides uh, in a way that America did some years ago. Um, uh, America, uh, because it stood for certain values in the world uh, when it decided to turn around and invade Iraq, suddenly realised that people um, had expectations of America and how it would behave. And, uh, and America spent a long time trying to manage those expectations. I think exactly the same thing is happening with China. You know, China ha does have this, uh, this incredible growth story to tell. You know, it's... It, the, the, you know, lifted more people out of poverty in a shorter space of time than any other country on earth in history. Um, and yet when China got to Copenhagen, suddenly China realised that others had expectations of China's responsibilities. And suddenly, you know, the, the downsides of soft power became apparent. So in that and in a range of other things, uh, you mentioned overseas development assistance, China is starting to realise that managing one's perception and others' expectations of, of one's own country can be quite a difficult thing. John? I don't know as much to add, but I, you know, I, I query whether soft power is really such a priority um, um, for the Chinese state at the moment. Yes, they've thrown an incredible amount of money at it, but in a way, money's easy, you know. Um, and you know, if they were, if the Chinese government was really interested in, in international soft power, I don't think we would have seen anything like the Rabia Kadir kind of fiasco of July last year. I don't think Stern Hu would be in jail. I don't think you know. I, I think that the Chinese government would have found you know a slightly more nuanced um, way to get its point across at Copenhagen, uh, and also its point across about the Dalai Lama, Obama visiting the Dalai Lama and the Taiwan arms sale. So I actually think what we're seeing in the last year is kind of, well, kind of bugger it. You know, we're big enough. Um, um, let's just do what we want. And soft power was kind of a moment when China wasn't quite big enough to do what it wants. Good. Next question. Please. Young man with the blue, blue uh, jacket on there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Peter Hendrup. Um, first, I've never understood the fear or concern about chi the rise of China. Um, so I'm going to make just a couple of quick comments here rather than... My question will basically be, why are people afraid? 
but the, the suggestion that Australia was always rich in the late 50s and coming into the early 60s, the Australian dollar was worth 15, 15 and 6 against the British sterling. Um, US dollar was 7 and 6, and the New Zealand pound was on par. And Australia then started to pick up with mining. So you haven't Australia has not always been rich. It definitely had a down period sometime in the 40s, 50s, 60s. I'm not exactly sure when. Um, two, the fear of China to me seems to be based on the idea that it's going to charge around the world as the US does, slamming bases everywhere and taking control. Whereas I believe it's more likely that their method of control will be by helping, as they are, pouring money into countries and whatever. And Australia is very critical of, of human rights um, and woeful record internally and externally. And China is much more pragmatic in saying, you get on the way you think, we'll have a, 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 a relationship which is based on trade and whatever, and that's good enough for us. I think that might work better than the American way. Can I respond? You can, yeah. yeah. Look, I think you actually raise a, a good point, and I think one of the... Um, I mean, it's very difficult to get away from this kind of what is the China threat, it is the military threat, somehow they're going to come and invade the world. And I agree with you, it's almost ridiculous to imagine. Um, you know, it doesn't even become possible until 30, 50 years out and, you know, all sorts of kind of bad things have to happen before that happens. But, you know, I think, you know, if there's, you know, and I thought John here put it very well today, you know, China threat's the wrong word, China risk I think is a very sensible word. And what are the risks? And I think it's actually, um, you know, China actually not being strategic enough, and accidents happening, growing so fast that it rubs up against things it didn't know were there, it sets off time bombs, it's, you know, corruption in state-owned companies, you know, the political system, the PLA kind of controlling politics or the other way around. It's the messiness, you know, that I think is, is actually more dangerous than the cohesive strategic... Um, you know, possibilities that China might muster. Well, just uh, your point about Australia in the 50s. Um, Australia in the 50s on a per capita wealth basis was richer by many times than China is today. China today has a per capita wealth, uh, you know, GDP at around the same level as El Salvador and Egypt. Australia's was several times that. So I, I do not agree with you that Australia was well, we can settle that with the statistics later. Do you want to say something, really? I, I don't think... I, I shouldn't speak for all of my colleagues, but I don't think any of us here are, are, are actually feel threatened by, by China. I think anybody in Australia who thinks the Chinese are going to come and get us uh, are just <laughs> deluded. Uh, last thing that China's got in its mind. I think what is happening, though, is the rise of China is having an impact on the overall, you know, the strategic environment in, in which we live, and things are changing, and certainly people feel threatened by change sometimes, and, and, and so that, to me, is where the challenge is. I don't think, uh, for that matter, that, that a more powerful China, a very much more powerful China, uh, will necessarily have any impact on the way we... Uh, arrange our own affairs domestically. I think China has absolutely no interest whatsoever 
whether, in, in whether we are an absolute model democracy or, or turning on our souls and become some sort of nasty racist dictatorship as long as you know, the, the relationship functions and China gets the resources and we don't make trouble and toe the line on Taiwan and don't be boring on Tibet and so on. That'll be, that's that's what, that, what they want. And then we can run our own affairs exa exactly, exactly as we wish. But I think it's in that, that broader, broader framework of a changing environment that, some, that, that, that people have to... that is a, is a challenge. Some people will think, terrific, this is a challenge that we can rise to. will help in the continual process of, of remaking, uh, remaking Australia, rethinking who we are, how we fit into the world. And other people will say, oh, shit, this is dreadful. I, I want to go back to where we were before, please. It was so nice. Okay, uh, please, let's move up the back somewhere. Uh, there's a chap there next to Minglu with his hand up who looks distinctly like Simon Chan. Thank you. Um, Simon Chan. Um, Got that right, then. Yeah, you're right. So uh, I thought I would need a new glasses. Uh, no, no, you don't. Uh, your eyes are perfect, perfectly fine. Um, my question relates to uh, climate change. Um, that's been off the agenda now since Copenhagen. Um, the Labour Party's move on to a health plan and so on, and the Liberal Party doesn't believe in it anyway. Um, <laughs> um, I suppose um, John actually uh, had a couple of articles at the time yeah, pointing out that China was flexing its muscles at Copenhagen and um, in a way sort of like the deal was done on that basis. Um, I suppose from their point of view, I suppose they sort of, you know, looking at the, the fact that they are developing countries, so therefore they're only just catching up what the West have done before anyway. Um, I guess my question to the panel is like, um, is China really the villain in this case or, or should the, the West be looking a different way you know, come to the lead, you know, somehow and do something different? Or how should, where should we go from here anyway at this point? John, do you want to start? Well, I might just comment on that. Um, um, look, I, I found Copen, Copenhagen, Copenhagen a mystery. Um, I really had no idea how to approach it, what happened there. Um, and I had presumed it was a series of kind of miscalculations, accidents, you know, maybe, you know, and... And I don't think, you know, it's not like China is the villain. villain. The surprising thing was China joined the villains um, you know, there. And my, my kind of question was, why? What happened? And where I had kind of assumed some sort of accident scenario with a very tightly scripted kind of you negotiated and if X, then Y, if Y, then Z, then, you know, and, but something happened off the matrix and they didn't know how to handle it. That's what sort of how I imagined it. But um, then I, um, you know, um, I... Uh, Yu Qingtai, a terrific fellow at the um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs who is, uh, I think his title is China's climate change negotiator even if the reality is not always that way. And so I put these questions to him, you know, and I had a blank slate. If ever I, you know, anything he told me I would kind of, look, right, that's it. And he said, look, the reason, um, you know, if there was a single lesson that um, we hope the Western world learnt from Copenhagen, there was, you can't push us around. And, you know, that kind of rephrased is, you know, we're bigger now, we're tougher now. You know, that was the lesson that he thought the world should learn from Copenhagen. So that maybe that's what happened. Maybe China did go there to kind of show the world that it couldn't be pushed around. I'm really open to other kind of uh, hypotheses, but, um, you know, maybe it was a different China than we've seen. My, my colleague, uh, Warwick McKibben, um, actually argues that China did America a favour at Copenhagen, that, uh, it, that China prevented... America 
uh, uh, from uh, making commitments that it wouldn't be able to, to meet. Uh, it prevented the, the world from making commitments that it wouldn't be able to meet in the same way that uh, the world came together and made commitments in Kyoto, which it wasn't able to meet. And so uh, Warwick's argument, this is not my argument, is that uh, he knows a lot more about it than I do, is that by um, uh, causing the world to go away and think about it again, China was actually uh, doing something very positive uh, towards actually bringing about a climate change uh, action plan that would actually work, that countries could feel that they could meet. Um, for China not to... For China to want the, the world to know it couldn't be pushed around is perfectly understandable. No country likes to be pushed around. And, 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 and a great deal of what China has been doing over the last hundred years has been to avoid ever again being the situation that it was from the first opium war on, which was precisely of being pushed around by other countries. And so I think it's entirely understandable that uh, China doesn't want to be put in that position. At Copenhagen, I think we need to distinguish between the policies, and, and leaving aside that, the, the pushing around uh, issue, China's actual policies, and then the way in which uh, China, or rather some uh, members of the Chinese negotiating team, be behaved. Uh, I think the policies, again, uh, are all explicable, and they're certainly no worse than those of uh, many other, other countries. And, you know, China is not walk walking away in any way from uh, continuing to address the climate change issues uh, very seriously. But clearly, the way in which Obama was treated personally, uh, abrasive uh, things said on one or two occasions by some members of the negotiating team, played very, very badly, and they played particularly badly in a U.S.-China bilateral phase because the Americans had been working very hard to make nice with China since, since mm -hmm. Obama's inauguration. And that combined with some aspects of Obama's visit to China have left some of China's best friends in, in Washington, in the administration, uh, weakened. Uh, because those who want to argue, no, you know, you can't get anywhere with the Chicoms, quote unquote, um, uh, uh, point to some of the things that have happened in the bilateral relationship uh, to back up that that point, and that is very unfortunate. Good. Okay. Um, please, we have a. Oh, sorry. Well, why don't you put it over there first, and then we'll come down to you. Chap in the middle of the row. Sorry about that. Uh, Paul Blyton. I'm from um, Campbell Tamway, and um, we have a, a relationship with China we've had for 10 years. <clears throat> but I just wanted to uh, mention just a couple of things that um, when I first went to China, it was when the um, bombing of the Bosnian, uh, in Bosnia, the Chinese embassy, and we talked about the media. <clears throat> in, a, in the world, said that the worst of China. Lots of things were said about China, bad things, you know. And um, I went to a photographic exhibition and they showed the, the um, other side, if you like, of what happened. And it was very interesting to see another side of it. And even though they do have their um, policies on 
the media and what they can show and all that sort of thing. It is interesting to see that sometimes they don't show it to us, the other side. So we don't see the really bad things that perhaps we do or other people or other nations do. And so one of the points, sorry about the names because I can never remember people's names, but the gentleman with the caramel coat. Michael. I, Michael. I like... I like what he said about. I like what he said about, um, you know, perhaps, you know, getting society to, you know, be better people and know more about China, and China because China does try to find out more about Australia and more about uh, when they come out here they try to absorb as much as they can. Um, what I'd like to see is a change of attitude. I know they're a communist country. I don't agree with communism, but, you know, we still got to accept that that's their country and that's their society. And we don't have to accept the bad things that they do. Or, And I'm sure there's guys around here that would know some pretty bad things maybe they've done, but we have done some pretty, pretty bad things to Aboriginals as well. And, and I think some, someone mentioned something about that down there. But, you know... We don't go around saying things like that. What I'm saying is we should be learning more about the society in China and not just always criticising them for what they do, all the bad things. We should be bringing out some of the good things they do because they do do... Uh, the people themselves have done some fantastic things and I could go on about that. But I just wanted to just raise that point about censorship, I guess, um, that we sometimes, and I know that in Australia, if a, a paper is owned by a, a very political type person, then when it comes election time, they tend to go to one side. So where's the censorship? You know, uh, there's there's always another side to a story. So maybe mine's not a question uh, to you guys, but just a point that I wanted to make, and um, and I really enjoy being here today to hear the points of view. Thank you. I appreciate your comment, Paul. Uh, I appreciate your comment. I, I grew up in Europe, in England, um, just after the Second World War. And one of the things that always impressed me, particularly looking back on it, was something I participated in as a school kid. Uh, England, France, Germany had all been at war, not just once, but twice in the first half of the 20th century. So one of the early reforms that the European Union started was, the, first of all, the twinning of towns in these areas, but then sending school kids on exchanges to live for a month or two months with, with each other. And I can't think of anything else which really got people to know each other and understand each other's ways that was as effective as that. You know, if you go to France and Germany now, nobody talks about... Well, some people do, but very few people talk about who does Alsace belong to or Lorraine. No, no, it's a, it used to be. You know, in my lifetime, when I was a child, this was a serious problem, but it isn't now. And people really, they work together, they talk together, they know each other. And do you know something else? They even marry each other. It's very weird. So I, th I think, you know, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a bit bleeding heart in one sense, but it worked in Europe, and I don't see why it can't work you know, we have Chinese communities here. Uh, it wouldn't be ha a hard thing to do. 
to have a secondary school exchange with each other. Did you want to say something? Uh, Paul, I was, uh, I was privileged to uh, be a visiting professor at Zhongshan University in Guangzhou uh, for a few years, and uh, I was absolutely bowled over by the students I was teaching, the Chinese students. I mean, uh, they had wonderful English. Um, but during the question and answer sessions, uh, these kids would stand up and they would quote my own books and articles back to me. <laughs> now, I've written some pretty bloody boring books and articles, <laughs> and these kids had ploughed through these, you know, with the, with the exception of the University of Sydney, which is a very fine institution. <laughs> I, I have taught at several uh, tertiary institutions in this country, and even getting the kids to read what you've given them to read, what you've, t with your own lily-white hands, gone and photocopied yourself is very difficult. So um, I looked at these Chinese kids at this university and thought, my God, you know, this is, this is bigger than I thought. But uh, actually, we've got places for your kids when they grow up, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I just want to expand slightly on, on something that somebody has already raised. And this is the presence of both Chinese communities in Australia, but also a growing Australian community in China. And, and when I think of you know, reasons for being... Uh, relatively positive about the prospects for, for things uh, working out reasonably well. Uh, it's precisly these communities. I think you know, it's, ob it's obvious the, the very positive role played in Australia by Chinese communities. And we've had Chinese communities in Australia for a very, very long time. Uh, but also in, in China now, I mean, there are, there are remarkably large, very vibrant, very active Australian communities in all the major Chinese cities and often in quite out of the, out of the you know, completely off the beaten track places you'll find... Like Shanghai. Come <laughs> 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 uh, don't, don't say things about Alisson here. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, you know, they're, they're big to the point now with, with an AFL team in Beijing which right. plays an AFL team in Shanghai and so yes he, he, he gets beaten up badly from time to time as does your daughter yeah and, yeah, and my, my daughter plays in one of the AFL teams in Beijing too and her husband um, but that's another thing uh, you talked about Europeans marrying each other I mean Australians and Chinese are doing it all the time <laughs> marrying yes <laughs> that's what I was thank talking you. thank about. you very much Richard <laughs> <laughs> and I'm one of them so. <laughs> Um, question down here, young lady. Thank you. I like the description, young. Um, I have a, a question to the panel. Would you comment, please, on the institution and establishment of the rule of law in China? I think it would be a really good idea. <laughs> no, I, th I think, honestly, if you... If you I, I wanted to stay off interfering in China's internal domestic affairs, uh, which I think is a good, is a good idea. But uh, now you've given me an opening. I mean, if, and earlier on we were talking about uh, fantasising about, you know, what we would like if you know, make a perfect, uh, perfect world. I think, from, from my point of view, the two most important, most positive things that could happen in China would be a more open media and uh, a more genuinely independent judiciary, which is the, the, the really crucial part of rule of law. I mean, there are lots of good laws in China now, and as John was saying, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quite a, 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 an impressive and brave uh, 
uh, legal profession in, in China now too. But in, unless you have an independent judiciary, it's very hard to see that operating where it's most needed, which is where cases are difficult and sensitive. I mean, there are lots of areas of day-to-day -day Chinese life now where I think you can argue that you do have a rule of law. You know, lot people people go 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 to the law. Things go through the courts. Things get things get settled. And sometimes it's law with Chinese characteristics, with uh, with you know, built-in um, uh, me mediation and all those sorts of things. And that's and that's fine. But you know, where you need an independent judiciary is precisely in those sort of cases where the relevant party committee sees fit to interfere in the case. And you know, until that sort of thing stops, you can't really say that you've got a rule of law. I think those two things would actually be so good for the Chinese government. You know, we, we know a lot of the problems come from lack of, lack of feedback, and this is where a freer media would be so helpful, uh, rather than having to wait until there's a mass incident in such and such a place because of some dreadful thing that happened, which didn't, get into, which didn't come to the attention of authorities higher up precisely because of lack of free flow of information. And uh, the same sort of injustices, which then lead, can also lead to mass... Uh, mass incidents, as, as they're described. Again, if they're a more effective legal system, which everybody, well, the great majority of people felt that they could really trust, that would also be enormously helpful. And I think that then would play a role in making China a place which was even easier and more pleasant for us to contemplate you know, being a partner of. It's one of the, just very briefly, it's one of the... Um, unnoticed parts of the Australia-China relationship, how there is an increasing number of exchanges between mm. judges in China and, ju and judges in Australia. And uh, I've actually seen a couple of these exchanges happen, and it's serious stuff. This isn't... They're not just sort of talking about their families and the, the, the weather. They are talking seriously about how... Uh, what they can learn from the Australian legal system, and I think that's a very positive sign. Mm. Um, well, I think that's it. That's the question. And, um, and you know, if anything, if you could pick one thing that kind of that altered the kind of trajectory of Chinese kind of uh, development, it was the um, re-politicisation of the courts, which happened about two years ago and then got stronger and stronger in the last two years. Um, Richard, you said the most, two most important things were the media and the and the law, I just think they've got to be the other way around because if you open up the media first, the law just gets, the courts will just get flattened. You know, it's, um, um, you know, there is a transition area uh, question, you know, of what order do you see, do things? And I think it's completely unrealistic to expose higher levels of politicians to the rule of law um, in a non-revolutionary scenario, you know, at the moment because, you know, some of them, I dare say, have done some bad things. Um, but at the grassroots level, you know, it's actually one of the great, I think, frust great frustrations of, of um, you know, certainly liberal-inclined liberal kind of people, but just young people everywhere in China is, you know, why can't we have courts that work at the county level? You know, why can't we have kind of these ridiculous disputes kind of resolved? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why it was so dangerous to kind of you know, open that experiment and they have to put it back in the, in the box. And I'm sure it will be opened again. But the rule of law, I think, is everything because I think the, the, you know, the burning kind of question, is, the burning kind of desire that I kind of sense is shifting from let's get kind of less poor than we were to 
justice. And, and can I just add, you know, um, uh, it didn't come overnight in Europe. It came because uh, people thought it was in their best interest to create it. And it takes time. And uh, I'm quite an optimist about China. I think, you know, people in China, as John says, as other people say, uh, they want to do business in a regulated way. And if that business is making money or sending their kids to school or getting welfare, those things will come with time. It's, it's clearly a desire that a lot of people have, but it does take time. And you know, we live in society here, which is not that far, in Australia, is not that far off, um, uh, being out of the dark ages, you know? I mean, we, we have had our moments in recent living memory where politicians have been corrupt, uh, where governments don't do what they promise. I still have to walk to work. Uh, <laughs> not very far. Not very far. No. <laughs> the crossbar of better road. I was, hoping, I was hoping to cross a metro line, you know? As in becoming more mainland Chinese over time, and it's happened very subtly, uh, and it's happened uh, quite quickly. Um, it's, quite, it's quite amazing uh, that, uh, I mean, I was, I was lucky enough to be there through a fairly tumultuous year, which was 2008, and um, several things happened in 2008 that really surprised me. Um, the Sichuan earthquake, the Olympics... And, uh, and, you know, the, the Chinese space program. Each one of those, um, uh, the uh, Hong Kong people, uh, local people, yes, reacted in very similar ways in terms of the outpouring of grief about Sichuan, about the, uh, the upsurge of pride about the space program and the sheer anger and irritation about uh, what was happening with the Olympic torch in various other places. So... Uh, and this is, you know, 13 years after the handover. So, in one sense, what's happened in Hong Kong is fascinating. Uh, uh, you can write things in the newspapers, you can say things on the street in Hong Kong about the Chinese government in Beijing and about the Ho Hong Kong government that you couldn't say in Singapore about the Singaporean government and you couldn't say in Malaysia about the Malaysian government. This is a part of the People's Republic of China and it's got remarkable freedoms of expression. So there is something subtle going on and there is something incredibly important going on in the relationship between China and Hong Kong. And in my more optimistic moments, I think that, there is, that, that this is a key evolution that, that portends for, for the way that things might change on the mainland. Um, I was Consul General in Shanghai from 1994 to 1998 and that was a time when Shanghai was really beginning to take off and it was a time when there was real panic in Hong Kong about the prospect of Hong Kong basically being absolutely put in the shade by, by Shanghai. And of course there were good historical reasons for that because up until 1949 Hong Kong had been you know, not much more than a rather unsightly colonial pimple on China's bum whereas Shanghai had been an, in, an incredibly amazing uh, prosperous, adventurous wild, dangerous, etc, etc city, you know, one of the great cities of the world and the, some of the people who really helped to transform Hong Kong from what it had been to the Hong Kong it became were precisely those very large number of Shanghainese who went to Hong Kong after 1949 and in many ways helped to reproduce the older Shanghai in, in Hong Kong. Um, 
and they were worried. And it hasn't happened. But they were sufficiently worried for the authorities in Shanghai to go to a lot of trouble to try to convince Hong Kong, you know, steady, steady the buffs, it'll be all right, because, of course, this was the lead-up to 97. So, I mean, China itself had a major interest in not wanting to see Hong Kong go pear-shaped quickly. So you had the Xu Kuangdi, the excellent mayor of Shanghai, was saying, you know, no, uh, you know, can like be the two wings of an aeroplane, you know, soaring together into the blue imperium. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, the even, even more poetical senior executive vice mayor, Zhao Tijun, was saying it's going to like a, viol- a violinist and a pianist making beautiful music together. So we all, you know, waxed lyrical, not to say ecstatic. Um, but, I mean, what has happened is that Hong Kong is still in the really crucial areas where, where it matters of, of being a major f- financial centre. And that was what they were scared of, that Shanghai was going to take over Hong Kong's role as a major financial centre. It hasn't happened. And this is because of Hong Kong's comparative advantages. And it's not so much that Hong Kong speaks English, because one of the sad things is that the English level is not all that great in Hong Kong. Uh, and and it's, getting, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. But um, uh, whereas in Shanghai, I mean, the, the English levels, where it matters in Shanghai, are remarkably good. No, it is in, in fact, that I, something like I'm backing up my own arguments and repeating myself now, but so there's two crucial areas the media, which have already been referred to, and the rule of law. And, and, and the operation of still a relatively, a, a more a freer media than anywhere else in what we can call, call China, much freer media than anywhere else called China, and the effective operation of the rule of law ensures that you can do business and you can do the sort of business that you want to do in, in a major financial center that you s- still can't do in other Chinese cities, and which is, again, why I think those two things, and I'm not prioritizing them, but why they're both so important, and while as long as Hong Kong can preserve those two things, uh, it's got a future. Um, look, I know nothing about Hong Kong except the lines of Disneyland were too long. So I kind of you know, experience Hong Kong through China, and you know, I think Taiwan plays this role to an even greater extent. As well as kind of Taiwan and Hong Kong being sucked into the mainland's orbit, the sort of the same is happening in the other direction. And um, in Guangdong in particular, you know, it's a different country down there because they all get Hong Kong TV and they, they flip across, you know, on the fast train an hour and a half later, they, climb, they go mountain climbing on kind of Hong Kong Island because the air's cleaner and if they get lost, there's a search and rescue service that can find them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, right, one last yeah. question. Uh, Archibald, behind you. Archibald McKenzie, independent scholar. Uh, if there were, for whatever reason, a conflict, a major conflict between the US and China, how would Australia deal with that, in the opinion of you gentlemen? Just, just a small question, Archibald. <laughs> Maybe we should ask John. <laughs> uh, well, it would depend, wouldn't it? I mean, an enormous, I mean so, so much of what Australia tries to do is to, is to avoid being put in that situation. Uh, and and that's, that's one, one of a number of things that we share with Japan and a number of other countries. That, you know, that more than anything else, that is what we don't want. And the only way in which you could actually see that coming about would be over Taiwan. Um, and uh, although things have improved a lot since the election of the KMT government in Taiwan, um, you still can't entirely rule out 
things going pear-shaped there. But even then, you would have to look at, I think, what would be the circumstances. And I think you know, Alexander Downer got, got closest. If conflict was caused by you know, gross stupidity on Taiwan's part, you know, they did DPP win the next elections, the first thing they do is run the Jolly Roger up over Tong Tong Fu and say, we are independent. And then the mainland China comes to clout them. You know, I don't think Australia, from my point of view, uh, should have any business in getting involved in that sort of fight. And I think the Americans would have some serious problems too. If, on the other hand, it was an example of unprovoked attack by mainland China coming out of the blue uh, simply because, you know, one of the, the Politburo had a collective headache um, then, then there might be some some grounds for, uh, let's assuming the Americans get involved, then for other countries as as a way of you know saying, hey, this is not the way we expect a, a risen China, any great power to to behave. There are other ways of solving your problems than than military. Um, I mean, it's very very hypothetical. It really does depend a lot on the circumstances. Um, but there's an, another aspect of the question is how could Australia not be involved in some way uh, as long as we've got the joint facilities, as long as we've got Pine Gap. If the US gets involved in a war, particularly in our part of the world, we are actually involved in it. It does bug the question about how we got involved in Iraq then. I, I, I don't think there'd be very much doubt that uh, if America and China go to war, uh, Australia will be on America's side. Uh, the, to, to not be on, on America's side would uh, mean the end of our alliance with the United States and to repudiate the alliance with the United States is uh, such a strategic revolution in the mind of this country uh, that I don't think any Australian government would do it. So uh, I, I don't really have any doubt. But I think it's a nightmare scenario for, for Australia and I don't think it's very likely either. Uh, and, and it is a lose-lose. I mean, it's a matter of how, how, how do you lose the most. And I think most people would agree with, uh, with Michael that in the end you lose the most by uh, staying right out of it. Uh, but you nevertheless lose a great deal because China is so important to us. Um, do you want to say something? No, just that I wouldn't speak for my country. I'll just go sit it out in New Zealand. <laughs> I, I would be very tempted to go and live in North China, actually. I mean, I'm fairly... Unlike, you know, you were talking about there wouldn't be millions of people who... That's an advantage. I'd like to go there now. Right, but anyhow, OK. I'd like to thank uh, our three speakers very much indeed. I'd like to thank all of you. I'd particularly like to thank you, uh, given that we're talking about Sino-Australian relations, for not having mentioned the fact that Zhang He came here in 1421, uh, because, of course, we know he didn't. Uh, so thank you very much to the panel. Thank you to the audience. And uh, thank you to uh, Meredith and Sydney Ideas. <laughs>